Let's open these precious Bibles that we have to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. May we all turn these pages realizing that you're holding in your hands the inspired breath of God. The very words that He would have for us in our own language. We are most blessed. Receive these words today, not as my words, but as the words of God Himself. And may they be effectual to bear fruit in your lives. I do not want you just to hear my words. I want you to lay hold of the lessons that are in Philippians chapter 4. And there are many of them. And they're good lessons. And they're short lessons. And I don't want you to get distracted because there are many lessons. But let's lay hold of each one. Let's go to the first verse for the first lesson. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. The first lesson in Philippians chapter 4 is the lesson of perseverance, and that is continuing in the faith that God has called us to, and that is the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul loved the Philippian church. He loved the saints at Philippi. In this one verse, he calls them dearly beloved twice. He says they were his crown and his joy. They were a thrill to him because of their fellowship in the gospel, he told us in chapter 1. Their willingness to suffer, their obedience, whether he was present or absent, which he's already told us, and their kind remembrance of him even when he was serving other churches, and no one else was sending him any gifts, they were. We'll read about that later in the chapter. The apostle loved these saints. But the lesson that he wanted to give them in verse 1 of chapter 4 is indicated to us by two words. The first word, therefore, means he's drawing a conclusion from something he's already just said. And the little tiny word, so. So, stand fast. Now, to stand fast is to be fastened in one place so that you are not moving. And to stand is to be actively engaged in some pursuit rather than sitting or lying. Stand fastened in one place without moving. And where should that be? It should be in what he just taught in the last half of chapter 3. Pressing for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Minding heavenly things, as verses 20 and 21 tell us, and not being a belly worshiper, as verses 18 and 19 tell us. The true measure of a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who continues. Jesus would turn to those that believed on him, as he did in John chapter 8, and said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. If you do not continue in my word then you're not really one of my disciples. It's continuing. Every one of you, except those who haven't been baptized yet, every one of you that have been baptized have said before God and to Him, before His angels and before saints, I am burying my old man to rise to walk in newness of life. You gave that oath in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Because I baptized you with an oath. I baptized you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you committed 
to live a life of obedience to the things of God. And this first verse is a lesson. Stand fast in that commitment. Don't become earthly minded, as verse 19 describes. Be heavenly minded, as verse 20 describes. And so our first lesson, and we're at the end of it already, is perseverance. Are you continuing in what you committed to do? What a disgrace for a sovereign to die for us. Us to hear that message, rejoice in it, be baptized in his name and in a picture of his death and resurrection, and then not live for him. Mind earthly things. Be a belly worshiper. Be an enemy of the cross of Christ by considering this world important. What a disgraceful shame. May God bless us to lay hold of verse 1 and understand that when there was a church that the Apostle Paul loved dearly, and he said it twice, a church that was his crown and his joy, he still had a lesson for them. Don't move. Continue in the course you have chosen. Do not become enamored with this world. Don't slack off, but press on, stand fast, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. That was lesson number one. Are you as committed today as the day you were baptized? I hope we're all more committed than the day we were baptized because we've learned more since then. I hope that's the case. Let's go to the next lesson in verse 2. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. I would not have wanted to have been Yodius or Syntyche sitting in the congregation at Philippi when Epaphroditus stood up and read an epistle from Paul and Timotheus and had my name called out in verse 2 of chapter 4. Would you? That would have been horrible. And then when this epistle went to the neighboring towns of Thessalonica and other cities, there's those names. And they're there forever. 2,000 years, men and women have read about Yodius and Syntyche because they couldn't get along in the church of God. And so lesson number two is unity. And he's already taught it once, hasn't he? But sometimes a pastor can get away with being general. Verse 2 of chapter 2, when he said, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. Now that's general. No one squirms under that one as much because it's general to the whole church. But then he gets over here to chapter 4 and verse 2, and he names two people. Now if anyone ever says to you, your pastor's too harsh, he's cruel, he doesn't have good pulpit manner, He names names sometimes. I don't name him as much as Paul would if he were here. I want to get close. Paul named names in an assembly that was going to go to the whole, all the churches. They were all going to trade these epistles and they would all know about Yodius and Syntyche. Now we're not told what the problem was between these two. We don't know if it was a doctrinal matter or some personal matter. But you know what? We've been told how to get rid of all those kind of differences. And so we ought to. But differences are always personal in a church. If they still exist, they're personal. Because there's a way to always take care of them. What does the Bible teach us? If you think that you might have offended someone, 
you should go to them and take care of that offense. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Jesus Christ would say, don't bring your gift to my altar if you have a problem with someone else. Drop the gift, go take care of the problem, then come and offer your gift. Are you all familiar, or do I need to take you to Matthew 5? You should know that. That's when you think you might have offended someone else. And the only way you can ever figure that one out is to stop and think about it. Is there anyone that I might have hurt? If you've offended someone, that's how you deal with it. But if someone else has offended you, you're told how to deal with it. You're to forget it. You're to overlook it. You're to bear it. You're to endure it. You're to believe all things. You're to hope all things. But if you've got a little heart that doesn't know the grace of God, Jesus provided for you too. And he said you can go and confront them about what they did to offend you. And if they won't hear you, then go get one or two more so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word can be established. And if they won't hear them, you can bring it before the church and get resolution for it. But you know what? That shouldn't be practiced very often. And it hasn't been. Because you should overlook it. It is the glory of a man to pass over a transgression. And that doesn't mean to pass over a transgression against God. It means to pass over a transgression against you. You know, the hard kind. You don't care nearly as much about God as you do yourself. You'll get much more upset about someone offending you than someone offending the Lord. Which is a pity about the state of our own souls. But that's how you deal with it. If it's a matter of liberty, there should be no differences in our church over a matter of liberty. Because God doesn't care about what you think on a matter of liberty. He doesn't care what you do on a matter of liberty. And so there ought to be unity. If it's a matter of doctrine, we all submit to the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If you think a false doctrine is being taught in the church, bring it to me. But you better bring a whole lot of scriptural evidence that what we're teaching and practicing is wrong. I don't want your opinions because I'm going to call them foolish and unlearned questions if you push me just a little too hard. Because unless you bring the word of God, that's exactly what they are. I'll answer any question if it's a question. But if you're coming trying to change our doctrine, you better bring the word of God and pointing out where we're wrong. There shouldn't be differences. Just think of being Yodius or Syntyche in the church at Philippi. They got humbled before the whole Christian world, and they've been humbled for 2,000 years. They're going to be two people in heaven with their name tags turned around. Because here we are reading about them in Philippians 4.2. Isn't that a dis- I want you to feel for, feel for them and feel against them that the Apostle Paul, sitting in a prison in Rome, had to, pull, had to say to Epaphroditus as he was writing this epistle, Go ahead, verse 2 of chapter 4. Use their names. We'll get this thing corrected. Brethren, where do you have a problem in this church? Who's your syntyche? I ask every one of you. I ask me. Who is your syntyche? Go to syntyche and love syntyche. End whatever problem is between the two of you. There is no room for problems between people in the church of God. None. I don't want to hear, even in the spirit, any defense.
for problems against anyone. It doesn't matter that somebody's wronged you. Of course they've wronged you. What does that have to do with anything? We all wrong each other. That's why we're all together in this church, is because we're all going to wrong each other, and we're going to have a trial put on us, whether we have any character. Character is how you handle people wronging you. There is no character in getting along with people who always treat you right. That's not character. That's a vacation. Don't be defensive about it. Who has wronged you? Who irritates you? Love them. Go out of your way to do it. Yodius. We don't want any Yodius syntyche problems in the church at Greenville. Paul didn't want them at Philippi. So it's unity. Lesson number two. I love this chapter. Perseverance. You were baptized in the name of your dread sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you persevering in his religion? Are you obeying his commandments? Number two, are you loving his brethren? Are you tossing away anything that comes up between you and another because he thinks it's ridiculous? And to be glorious, you would overlook it. Love would cover sins, bury sins, forgive people. Love believes all things, hopes all things, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. That's love. That's verse 2. That's lesson 2. Lesson number 3 is gospel service. Let me read it to you. Philippians 4.3 And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. The Apostle Paul here addresses an individual man, by the word, by the pronoun thee, and by the singular noun yoke fellow. Now, who is this? Now, if you read commentaries, now you're going to get disgusted. If you read commentaries, do you know that there are many men who have read the Bible and taught the Bible that believe that that was Paul's wife? His yoke fellow. They were yoked together in marriage. Now, is that the most pitiful thing you've heard in your life? Now, here's a problem. Men come along, old and new, and write that the yoke fellow of Philippians 4.3 is Paul's wife. Then when you read commentators that have their heads screwed on a little bit better, they have to spend half their time on that verse undoing the fact that this was Paul's wife. I'll tell you who it is, and none of them have figured it out. I'll trust the English language, thee and yoke fellow, and by reading the whole epistle. It's Epaphroditus, the one who's reading the epistle. Paul and Timothy to the church at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Epaphroditus is the one sent with it, chapter 2, verse 25. Epaphroditus is standing in that church, reading the epistle, and the apostle after mentioning two others by names, says, And thee, yoke fellow, I have a job for thee as well. Now, there were more than one bishop at Philippi, because we're told that in verse 1. But this is one individual person, and it's Epaphroditus. Come back to chapter 2 and verse 25, and this is not a very important point, but I thought, I hope that you might enjoy it. Read the context. I trust the context. Look at 2.25. This tells you that Epaphroditus arrived with the epistle. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, now look what Paul says about him, my brother and companion in labor 
and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. And he goes on and describes him a little further in a couple more verses. But is that a yoke fellow? Can we say that uh, a brother, a companion in labor, and a fellow soldier is a yoke fellow? Does that sound like someone in the yoke together with you? And it's a singular. It's not addressed to all the ministers at Philippi, but Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, true yoke fellow, good brother, truly caring for the church at Philippi while you were with me, sick over the fact that they were sorrowing about you. I have a job for you. Take care of all the women that helped me when I, in the gospel when I was at Philippi. I want you to take care of Clement also and other of my fellow laborers, other bishops and deacons that labored with Paul, whose names are in the book of life. Can you know that a person's name is in the book of life? The Apostle Paul said that these people had their names in the book of life. Now, he was an apostle. God would have given him a spirit of discernment greater than you or me. However, when a person is serving in the gospel, faithfully and sincerely, there's every reason to say that their names are in the book of life. We do not have to go through life wondering if our names are in the book of life if we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel. Because that's what it said. It said, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Now, from this verse, we do not find justification for Ron Carpenter's wife being an apostolus of the World Redemption Outreach Center in Greenville, South Carolina. We don't find in this verse enough support for any other woman to be a teacher or preacher of the gospel. Because we have the rest of the New Testament telling us that these words cannot possibly mean that. That is how we read the Bible. We don't jump into Philippians 4.3 and get all excited that we can have a female pastor. We jump into Philippians 4.3 and realize, I need to understand this verse in the light of everything else taught in the New Testament because there is no prophecy of Scripture that is of any private interpretation. And that would be a private, separate, individual, or all alone interpretation of Philippians 4.3. Can women help in the ministry? What did Lydia do as soon as she was baptized? What did she say to Luke and Paul? If you've judged me faithful at all in my love of the Lord, stay at my house. I'll take care of you. Is that a big help to a minister so he doesn't have to worry about where he's going to stay and what he's going to eat? Lydia did that. Did you know that the first 15 verses of Romans 16 mention several women that helped? Aquila even helped convert Apollos. I mean, Priscilla, the white Mrs. Aquila. Priscilla helped convert Apollos. Because that's what we read. Aquila and Priscilla took him home and explained to him the way of God more perfectly. A woman can teach and say things privately. She just can't teach or say things publicly in the church of God, in a formal assembly of the church. Can women teach younger women? Should they teach younger women? Yes, they should. There are things women can do, and the Apostle and the Lord himself knows those women, and they're to be helped. Help those women which labor with me in the gospel. Give them what they need. What Romans 16 told the Roman saints, when Phoebe gets there, you give her anything she wants. Because I trust that woman, she will take care of things in that church that a woman can take care of, and you give her whatever she has need of, Romans 16, 1 through 2. 
There are women that are good business women. There are women that are organized. There are women that get things done. There are women that care for the things of God. There are women that care for the gospel of Christ. There are women that would make provisions for people, hospitality, take care of widows, put up, a, get a room for a preacher of the gospel that's coming, carry epistles, do whatever that they're allowed to do, and they were good women. And they're, they're recognized in the word of God because they served with them in the gospel. To have your name in the book of life is one of the greatest blessings you could possibly ever imagine. The disciples came back to Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 10, they were so excited because they could cast out devils. And that would be exciting to cast out a devil with the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. But Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Rejoice not in this, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Peter, James, and John, don't get excited because you threw some devils out. Get excited that your names are written in heaven by the grace of the living God. And Paul said that about these women and Clement and his other fellow laborers that would have been men, that their names were in the book of life because they served in the gospel. And so lesson number three for all of you is, what have you done in the last week to serve in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in this church? There are servants of the gospel on the website, audio tapes, videotapes, recording, music, gifts, charity, kindness, all sorts of things. Opening up your home, hospitality, correspondence, serving in the gospel to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ in lives. It's a wider range of things that can be done. You say, well, some of those are so small they don't really count. Well, they count with a God who sees small things. Do you know how small he gets? He watches sparrows fly. I think sparrows, I've been taught since I was, don't record this, but go ahead. I was taught since I was a little boy that sparrows were bad birds. And, you know, we would shoot every single one we could. We means my brother that's sitting in the back row. And we means my father who isn't here right now. But we were always taught to hate sparrows. And we were taught to love wrens. Now, I... I've been told that some of you hate wrens and love sparrows. But see, that's a matter of liberty. So don't get upset at me, and I won't get upset at you. But we would build wren houses. Now, this is a little rabbit trail to keep some of your young children awake. We would build wren houses, a birdhouse. And if you built the house and used a quarter for the door, I mean a quarter, not a half dollar, a sparrow can't get in. If it's a quarter, but a wren can just get in. And so dad would teach us this, and we would hate those sparrows. They'd come and sit right at the door and try to get in there and eat their eggs. Till dad got a hold of them. And little boys watching their preacher father in the parsonage, pulling out a gun, stalking through the yard, shooting sparrows off the perch of a wren house. There's lots of things that you can do. To serve Christ. The Lord sees the little ones. And you know what? Not a single sparrow fell to my father's marksmanship that the Lord hadn't purposed to let fall. And even something that insignificant, the Lord sees, and the Lord sees every small thing that is done for another brother. Do you know what is going to be remembered in heaven? That you gave a cup of cold water to a, to a believer in Jesus to one of these little ones that believe in me. If you give a cup of cold water to a child, it'll be remembered. 
And it's evidence that your name is in the book of life. Don't walk past the children in this church and ignore them. Don't walk past it. Who do you think you are? More important than these children? If you push me hard enough, I'll say that they're more important than you. Because you're about to be fertilizer for dandelions. And they still have a life in front of them. Now, I don't believe that. I believe that the real foundation of this church are the men in it. But don't forget those children. Let's love every one of them. You can, we can all serve in the gospel. Verse 4. Lesson number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Joy ought to be the mark of a Christian's life. Joy, which is gladness and happiness. I am not going to give you some mystical explanation of a difference between joy and happiness and gladness because I can't find it in the Bible. But I will tell you that the difference of joy, happiness, and gladness in a Christian is different from the joy, happiness, and gladness in a worldling. They get their joy, happiness, and gladness of things that happen to them in life. If they make a buck, can you believe it? They get excited and ha- the happiest they can get when they make another buck and they can't take it with them. When their team wins a game, but their team can't get them to heaven. When they get a new house, but they can't keep the payments up on it. But they'll get excited about all these things in the world when it's in rejoice. What does it say in the verse? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. This verse isn't an observation. This verse is an imperative command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, I took several minutes of your time, and I took several minutes of the Lord's worship this morning to talk about a brother. But I think all of you understand that God sent us a special person. And she knows how to rejoice in the Lord always. Due to circumstances that we're not asked for, that little sister has to bake with your pastor two mornings a week. And when she can rejoice in the Lord in there, she can rejoice in the Lord always, and she does. And I am not being foolish in the pulpit. I don't know how to do anything half speed or pace myself, and I get too intense in there, and it's been a long time since I did it, which means I make mistakes, which means I get pretty upset at myself. And she's rejoicing in the Lord always. You know, Brother Red came by on Friday, and I said, here's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. And brethren, I was not the lamb. And then he's on the other side of the room. She was between two lions. But you know, the Lord put us all together. But we're to, we're to rejoice, and she does. She has had some circumstances, and you women are going to hear about them. You women bellyache, complain, and whine, and, and withdraw, and punish your husband for some of the foolish, most foolish things in comparison to what you're going to hear from her on Wednesday night, she's going to make you feel horrible. Go for it, sister. Amen. By describing how the Lord gave her victory over some very difficult circumstances, she put her total trust in the Lord, and she purposed that she would approach every aspect of her life, a job that was very difficult, 
and a marriage that was very difficult, in the strength of the Lord and do it as unto him, and he gave her full joy. And that's how we all ought to approach life. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. If your joy comes with more money, it's because you're going to spend eternity in hell. Joy does not come by circumstances. Your greatest joy should be in the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course we're all thankful when we get more money. Of course we're thankful when we get over the flu. Of course we're thankful when good things happen to us. But our greatest joy should be in the things of God. We should be like David who said that his joy in the Lord exceeded the joy of the wicked when they increased in corn and oil and wine. He said, my joy in the Lord is better than that. And I can do it in my bed. I can do it no matter what my circumstances are. And David's circumstances were for most of his life pretty pitiful. But he was joying in the Lord. Here's a commandment. I don't need to spend long on it. I don't need to show you 50 verses. You just need to ask yourself a question. And I'll help you. Am I as joyful as I should be? Do other people look at me and know that I'm a joyful Christian? Should I be offended because the pastor mentioned Deborah Richard because I'm more joyful than she is? I hope that she provokes all of us to that nasty word in the Bible called emulation. She's going to be very upset about this sermon and this day. And you all know that. She's going to write me. I don't like to be mentioned. I like to sit in the back row and be ignored. But I want God sent her to us. And it wasn't an accident. We don't believe in any accidents. We have a little bundle of joy. And we want to be like her. And we have a joy. And we have some other bundles that have been named after that joy. And we want to be joyful because the Bible tells us, and that's lesson number four. And you need to ask yourself, is my joy dependent on my circumstances or am I joyful in the Lord? Do you know what? The Lord never changes. So your joy should never change. Lesson number five, verse five. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Moderation in this verse does not mean compromise. Moderation on this verse does not mean, well, we can go halfway with you in your error. We'll meet you halfway. It doesn't mean anything like that. There is no place for moderation in the religion of Jesus Christ as far as his doctrine and practices are concerned. The Bible tells us to be zealously affected always in a good thing. When the Lord gives us the gospel, we are to be zealous about it. We are to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. This verse means temperance. This word means self-discipline. To be moderate is to be under control, governed, ruled, self-disciplined, and temperate. That's the only place where the word's used like that. In, in, just like that. In the other places where it's used, it's temperance. Fruit of the Spirit is temperance. To prove you're a child of God, temperance. Temperance, a disciplined life. Paul here is telling these Philippian saints, let your moderation, let your discipline, your sober approach to life, your temperance, your avoiding all extremes, be known unto all men, not just in the church of God, but outside these doors, We should be governed individuals that govern our speech, that govern our anger, that govern our opinions, that govern our reaction to people, that govern our eating, that govern our drinking, 
that govern our use of money, that govern our driving, that govern our relationships. may have mentioned that already. Every part of your life should be disciplined, governed, temperate, under control, never losing control. Christians shouldn't lose control. Why should they lose control? They have the power of the Holy Spirit in them to live above that. To all men. You know, when I look at this, and I especially see these last couple, joy and temperance together, if a person was always joyful and always temperate before the world, that would be a a fantastic testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those watching. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand can be run a couple of different ways, and it doesn't really matter because it ends up at the same place. The The Lord's coming is to be understood at hand throughout the New Testament, that the Lord was coming soon, but not so soon that it would drive the Thessalonians into fear, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 describes. But there's another way that the Lord is at hand, that he's always close. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, the Lord asks Israel, Am I a God at hand, or am I a God afar off? Do not I fill heaven and earth, is what he said. And so the Lord is at hand. The Lord is always watching when we blow up, when we do something extreme or excessive. And that verse is against it. We want to live temperate, disciplined lives. We live in a generation that is incontinent. Second Timothy 3.3, as it describes the perilous times of the last days, says that Christians will be incontinent. That means they can't control themselves. Right. Children can't control themselves. You know, we're we're teaching our children to control themselves just by sitting through one of my long sermons. That's continence, that's temperance, that's moderation. We want to teach our children and our families to, to control ourselves. We don't get a control by blowing off and saying things that we shouldn't or getting angry when there's no cause. If you want to get angry, get angry for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ and go do something about it. Get angry for the Word of God and go defend it. Let your moderation be known unto all men. I I hope that all of us can be known in and out of this church as being under control, temperate, disciplined men and women and children. Let's go to the next lesson. It's lesson number six, and it's verses six and seven. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What is this lesson? Carefree living. There is a carefree approach to life. And the carefree approach to life is whatever is happening to you, turn it over to the Lord. Turn it over to Him with prayer and supplication. Give Him some thanksgiving for all the good things He's done for you. And don't worry about it. Forget about it. Go to bed. Psalm 127, verse 2, It is vain for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Go to bed. If you have done your reasonable best in any matter, if you have done your reasonable best in any matter, and you've turned it over to the Lord with thanksgiving, and you've stopped worrying about it, go to bed. Take a nap. 
Leave it in his hands. But do your reasonable service, not your extreme. Just do a reasonable service and turn the rest over to him. This verse says, be careful for nothing. That means don't be anxious, worried, or fearful about anything. The Lord will take care of us. The Lord takes care of sparrows. When was the last time you saw one sitting on a wire fretting? Well, except to get in my dad's birdhouse. But, I mean, usually they don't sit around and fret. They don't fret. The Lord's going to take care of them. They know it. Why haven't we figured it out, bird brains? And I say that to you and to me. Trust the Lord. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious, worried, or fearful about anything. But whatever's wrong in your life, turn it over to the Lord by prayer and supplication. Prayer is telling the Lord your needs. Supplication is begging Him for help. And do both of those with thanksgiving for all the things He has done for you. And you know what God promises to do? He promises to give a peace that passes understanding. It means it is not humanly explainable how a person could be in such tormenting circumstances and be so carefree. Without mentioning any names, it still applies to the same situation that the women will hear about on Wednesday evening. He gives a peace that passes understanding. You're going to hear about it Wednesday night. I'm just giving you a little preamble to it. And I'm telling the men who are going to miss it. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Your heart and mind, the thing that can get trouble and hurt us the most, inside can be kept and calmed. Being stroked by the Lord of the universe. Our heart and our mind down here and up here. The two things that are active when we're laying in bed. The two things that are active when we're driving. The two things that are active all the time can be stroked and calmed and tranquilized by a peace that is unexplainable in human terms that God gives because we say, I've done my reasonable best, Lord, I trust you for the rest. Here it is. Please help me. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And there's a God in heaven that takes care of sparrows. And you know what he said about you? He said you are of more value than many sparrows. He will tranquilize. And I mean that in a good sense. He'll calm your heart and your mind. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. So what should we do? Next verse. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. He can take care of all your little tiny problems. All he asks is a little bit of reasonable service and he'll do the rest. The carefree life is taught in verses 6 and 7. Holiness is taught in verses 8 and 9. Let me read these verses to you. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Before he gets to his closing remarks, he says, 
I'm, I need you to be thinking and doing the right things. If you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and be promoted in the opinion and sight of God, here are things you should think about. Verse 8 has eight character traits of the things we ought to be thinking about. If they're true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good, of good report, and if there's any virtue or any praise in them, that's what we ought to think about. That is a command of the Word of God, and the God of peace will be with you. If you want peace in your life, you get there by the highway of holiness. Amen. When your peace is suffering in your life, it's because you're not on the highway of holiness. You have wandered off into some path of pleasure. Look at the holiness of verse 8. Verse 8 has eight marks of what you ought to think about. You know, this gov- does this fit with what I covered with you on Wednesday evening? Amen. Evil communications, corrupt good manners? Amen. There's good communications right there. What inputs are you allowing in your life? If you limited all your inputs to things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, and making sure they have some virtue and some praise... You will be at peace, and you will have inputs that lead you right to heaven. We live in a generation that has more inputs available to us than any generation before us. We must admit that fact, and it's true. We have to take greater care and put up more of a guard than our fathers and our grandfathers before us. Grandpa's mule on the back 40 didn't give him very many inputs. But I'll tell you, the radio and television and billboards and magazines and newspapers and friends and people and cell phones and Internet and everywhere you turn is an input. It's, it's bombarding our senses. And so you put up a rule. This is what I will think about. These are the things I will think about. If it's not just, if it isn't right and good and fair, in God's opinion, I'm not going to think it. All these terms are defined by the God of heaven. It doesn't matter whether the world thinks it's true or not. True in the first part of this verse doesn't mean 2 plus 2 equals 4. God doesn't care about 2 plus 2 equals 4 in this context. This is holiness. These eight terms are to be described by God. His truth. Honesty. In your dealings, as God would define honesty in dealings. Justice, as God would define it. Something that's lovely, as God would describe something that's lovely. When the Bible describes something something that's beautiful, that's what he means here. Not what Bob Jones University thinks. Now, when you go on the campus of Bob Jones University and you walk down the sidewalk and the student center is on your right, after you pass the student center, and I think there's now... I'm not sure what else is there. You come to another building, and there's a cornerstone on that building, and it says, Whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. Now, for those of you that have been there to the world's most unusual university, what building is that cornerstone on? The art museum, the art gallery. What sort of things are lovely? What they mean is Catholic art painted three, four, five, six hundred years ago of Mary having the keys of the kingdom of heaven handed to her. And she hands them to Jesus, and Jesus hands them to Peter. 
That's what's lovely to them. Some Catholic art. That isn't what it's talking about. And lovely here isn't a sunset. Lovely here are things of morality, things of righteousness, truth, holiness, godliness, the true beauty that's in the world. You think the sun's beautiful? You're going to see a sunrise one of these days. It's never going to go down. And it's going to put that one in the shade because it's going to be reflecting from the the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be reflecting the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. True glory. True loveliness is virtue. What's a beautiful woman in the sight of God? A woman with beautiful hair? A woman with beautiful accessories? What's real beauty? Meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Those are the things that we ought to think on. And here's a whole list. Let Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 govern your use of television. You show me the movie that fulfills those eight marks as defined by the Bible itself. Not only what we think about, look what Paul said in verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul said, I'll be your example. If you want to please God, just follow me. He said that in 1 Corinthians 11. Be ye followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. He said it in chapter 3 and verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. Paul's our example. So as we read through here, we see Paul's commitment to Jesus Christ. His constant thinking about what Jesus did for him, leading him to do so many things for Christ. To die is gain. I'd rather depart and be with Christ. And all those different things the Bible says about Paul, that's what we ought to do. It's the highway of holiness. How to think in verse 8 and what to do in verse 9. Think those eight kinds of thoughts that are described in verse 8 and do what Paul would do. And Paul didn't care how the Philippians had learned what he did, whether it was by his example, whether it was by an epistle, whether it was by his teaching when he was there in person. Whatever Paul was, follow me. I'll follow Christ to give you an example of how to do it. That's the highway of holiness. And that's lesson number 7 in verses 8 and 9. We come to verse 10, and I'm going to read 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Lesson number 8, in verses 10 through 13, and family, I've changed this a little bit from what you got last night. I broke it up a little finer. Lesson number 8 is contentment. And contentment is a key to life. It is a powerful thing for your success in life is to be contented. That means to make a choice to be happy with what you've already got. Your flesh and the world and the devil want you to always be thinking about what you don't have so that you'll be unhappy, miserable, greedy, covetous. It'll destroy your life. 
It's contentment. And the apostle said, I have learned it. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul didn't always know it. It's something that he learned. And he had learned it now so well by the instruction of God in verse 12. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed. Both to be full and to be hungry. It didn't matter to Paul whether he was being abased. Treated like the off-scouring of the earth as he describes himself in one place. And it didn't matter to Paul whether he was abounding having great fruitfulness in his ministry, a great place to stay, and being well taken care of financially, none of it mattered to him. He was content no matter what his circumstances were. He was happy with things the way they were. And you know what? There you have that verse that so many of us know by heart. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Its context is contentment because true contentment takes the strength of Jesus Christ. What is the Bible's simplest, shortest rule for success in life? 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a verse no one should ever forget. If I confused you with the reference, I'm sorry. Next time I'll leave that out. But what's the simplest, shortest rule? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Where was the godliness in this chapter? We've had a bunch of it, but verses 8 and 9 are real godliness. What to think and what to do. And then he moves right on into contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I don't care what anyone else tells you, what the devil shows you, or what Hollywood wants to sell you. It's not making more money. It's not a bigger house. It's not more cars. It's not a big investment account. Great gain is godliness and contentment. Godliness is pleasing the Lord by your life. Contentment is being happy with the things He's given you. Those two together, you have won the battle of life. You are pleasing God and you're happy with your circumstances so you can enjoy every day. The contented man can enjoy every day because he's contented. He's happy with what he has. Oh, what a powerful rule for being happy in life. Discontentment paints your whole world in ugly colors. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why. Because there's a being named Abaddon and Apollyon. And he wants to destroy your life. Discontentment will paint your whole world an ugly color. Because you're not happy with what you have. You'll be miserable. You'll never amount to anything as a Christian. And you're angering the God of heaven because he has given you many blessings. Everyone in here. There is no one in here without many blessings. Do you want to be rich? Believe that you are rich by all the good things God's given you already. Do you want to live in a great house? Believe that you're living in a great house and be thankful for it. You could be in a tent. And you should be if you're not thankful. I don't care what your house is. Paul had learned this. This is such a powerful rule. It's based on the sovereignty of God. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshipped God. It didn't matter. He was rich, and then he was quite poor, like destitute. And he said, the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The pain of discontentment is a monster. It's a chain that you, it's a monster that you have chained to yourself. And it will follow you all the way through life. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Is that terrible? If you set your mind, I can't be happy until I get more, when do you think you'll get it? You'll never get it. Is that an, is that an unmerciful monster? But what about the person that's thankful for what they have? And what if all they can do is sit down and eat some crackers? What does the Bible say? Better is a dry morsel with love and righteousness and peace than to have a filet mignon dinner with hatred, wickedness, and strife. That is a choice to be content in those things. Contentment is a commandment, not an option. It doesn't have anything to do with circumstances. It's a choice. What's the easiest way to add luster to your house? Walk through it and think about all the things that it needs? Or walk through it and think about all the things that it's got? Amen. What's the best way to add luster to your husband? Think about some other man and what your husband doesn't have? Is that going to help you? Or look at your husband and be thankful for all the good things that he does. Husbands, do you want to take 10 pounds off your wife in one second of time? Look at her and be thankful for what you've got. Then leave her a note to lose 10 pounds. That was the point being, being contented doesn't mean that you you stop making efforts to improve the things that you can. Do you know how much your mind controls your happiness? And it's a choice. You know, there are people in here, and you know who they are. They're never happy. You know why? They're too dumb to figure it out that happiness is a choice. They love to be miserable. They love, it's called masochism in a dictionary. Self-inflicted pain and punishment. They love to go around through life complaining about everything. Wishing that everything was different. And you know what? They're going to live that way. And then we're going to put them in a box and get rid of them. And they can complain down there where we won't have to listen to them. And nobody will be at the funeral wooing, ruining the fact that they're there. Because it's, it's wonderful to get rid of a complainer. Be contented. Contentment is a wonderful thing. I'm happy with my parents. Every one of you children, I wish I had different parents. I wish we lived in a bigger house. I wish I went to a different school. I wish I could watch more television. I wish my Game Boy was stainless steel like Caleb Baker's. I wish this and I wish that. Be contented with what things that you have. God tells you to be contented. Thank God for your parents. The blessed God of heaven shows the parents you have. The blessed God of heaven loved you so much that he sat down and he thumbed through his index cards of all the parents in the world. And he says, I want to give this person special parents. And he pulled two cards, and they were your parents. Amen. 
contentment. Paul learned it. It takes Christ's strength. But I'll tell you, if you start out on the highway of holiness, you can do it. Contentment's a wonderful thing. You can choose to be successful in life from this moment on, right now, with a choice. I am successful. I have God as my Lord and my Savior. I have Jesus Christ as my friend and my priest. I have a church of brethren who believe the same thing. I have a wonderful spouse. I have great children. The Lord is good. The sun is shining. Everything is good. Contentment. You melancholy types. And you know I'm talking to you because I know you well. Because I know me well. You hate that part of you. It's disgusting in the sight of God. Always thinking about the imperfection when there is so much perfection and so much mercy and so much goodness and so much grace in our lives. That's contentment. The next lesson begins at verse 14. And it's called Christian giving. It's giving. Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye said once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Verses 14 through 19 are giving. The Apostle Paul did not commend them for their giving because he got a gift. Verse 17 says, The Apostle Paul commended them for their giving because he wanted fruit to their account that would be well-pleasing to God and God would bless them. Any honest minister, when he preaches about giving, does not preach for himself. He preaches for his people that they might not lose some of God's benefits by being negligent in an important duty in their lives. And that's what Paul was doing when he said in 17, Not because I desire a gift. I'm not thanking you for what you sent because I really wanted a gift. I'm thanking you for what you sent because I desire fruit that may abound to your account. I want you doing things that God is well pleased with. And this thing that you've sent from a, by way of Epaphroditus, it is a sacrifice. It is a sweet smell. It is well pleasing in the sight of God. He is most blessed by it. And he's going to bless you according to his riches in glory. Now I wonder what the Philippians sent Paul. It was a poor church. Paul had to say, but God shall supply all your need. I'll bet it wasn't very big. I'll bet the Corinthians could have beat it a hundred times. Based on what we've already studied in the book of Second Corinthians. But look at what Paul had to say about it. He blessed and he praised them. This church took care of Paul when other churches weren't. It says, when I left Macedonia, which is the state that Philippi is in, a colony of Macedonia, when I left Macedonia and went to other cities, you were the only ones that took care of me. Right. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Let me tell you, let me tell, what's the lesson? Now, I could preach a long time on those verses. Let me tell you just a few high points. One, there's a difference in the people of God about their generosity. 
And in Romans chapter 12, it's called the gift of giving. It is a gift from heaven to be generous. And it's something we ought to reach for, to lay hold of, to be generous in our giving. There are differences in churches, even where Paul was the pastor or the founder of all of them. There were selfish churches and there was Philippi. There were rich churches like Corinth and there was Philippi. There's differences among the people of God. And what side of that line do you want to be on? Let's be on the generous side and do those things that are well-pleasing and a sweet smell in the sight of God. Let's think about ministers. Let's not let a minister go that could use our help. Let's help anyone that we meet that in sincerity and in truth is preaching the gospel and could use our help. This church took care of Paul, and the Lord was going to take care of them. And the whole thing was very pleasing to him. Giving is not for the one receiving. Giving is primarily for the one giving. Cheat yourself by not giving. You know, you had a proverb recently about giving from chapter 3 and verse 10. Verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. That's the commandment. What's the promise? Your barns will be filled with plenty and your presses will burst out with new wine. Your cash flow and your assets will increase. If you will give generously and cheerfully, that is the word of the Lord for your benefit. Put it in any box. Verse 20 is another lesson. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Everything we do should be done to the glory of God. You know how the Apostle Paul ends a letter? Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whether therefore ye eat, does the Bible really say this? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Does the Bible say this? And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. That'd be a good rule to practice, wouldn't it? Everything you do in life to the glory of God. Let's eat to the glory of God. Let's go for a walk to the glory of God. Giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's Paul's tenth lesson. Lesson number eleven is the kingdom relationships that we have with all saints. Verses 21 and 22. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you. Chiefly, they that are of Caesar's household. Paul tells the Philippians, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The saints in Christ Jesus. Because that's where all saints are. They're sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salute them. Greet them, bless them, speak to them. The brethren which are with me, the fellow laborers, Timothy and the others that were there, greet you. And all the saints here in Rome salute you, especially they that are Caesar's household. Those that I've had the privilege of converting in Caesar's household especially want you Philippians to know that they send their greetings to the church at Philippi. We have brethren in other states We have brethren in other nations. We're meeting more of them by way of our website. We want to salute and greet and bless and encourage all of them. Don't forget any of them. And he closes 
with our dependence on grace, as he does always. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Because we were dependent upon the grace of God to ever be chosen in Christ before the world began. And we are still dependent on the grace of God to do anything pleasing to him now. And so the apostle always turns his churches over to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And may it be with us all. May we seek it and be thankful for it and pursue it and use it as he gives it to us. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Brethren, I have given you 12 lessons from this chapter. Are you persevering in line with the baptism when you were, of when you were baptized and following the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully with a new life? Are you getting rid of all the differences between a syntyche in this congregation so that there is unity between you and all others? Are you participating in this church by helping in the gospel of Jesus Christ to go out from this church and to be effective in this church as Epaphroditus was. That was lesson three. Are you full of joy, like lesson four? Are you moderate? That means temperate and self-disciplined in your life, which was lesson five. Are you living the carefree life by turning all your troubles over to the Lord with thanksgiving and letting him give you the peace that passes understanding? Are you following the highway of holiness by thinking and doing the right things? Are you contented like the Apostle Paul learned, regardless of circumstances? Are you giving like the Philippians gave out of their poverty to help the Apostle? Are you doing everything to the glory of God in your life? Do you appreciate the kingdom relationships that God has brought us? And have you written or called or prayed for any of them? And are you dependent on the grace of God and are you seeking it in your life? May the Lord Jesus Christ cause us to humble ourselves underneath his mighty hand and these 12 lessons. Amen. Amen.